Our scripture reading today is from 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 8. Let me read this for us. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Thank you so much for uh, inviting me out here to preach today for this Mission Sunday. Um, it's a pleasure to be in Chicago again. Uh, it's been probably 20 years. I haven't spent that much time in this area at all. But um, as Pastor Robin mentioned, I did grow up in Dallas, Texas. Uh, my wife, Susanna, was born and raised in Kansas City. Uh, on the Kansas side, she would be sure to tell you. Uh, and she also went to U of I, Urbana-Champaign, so uh, she does have lots of friends um, in this area still, and she is very sad that uh, she was not able to make this trip out here with me. Uh, so, you know, Susanna and I are both uh, from this part of the country, but uh, we are very much a California family now. Uh, we have both been living there for over 15 years. That's where we met and got married. And so Southern California is our home base as we're missionaries now. Our sending church is in Los Angeles. And so even coming to Chicago uh, is something of a cross-cultural experience for me. Uh, before this visit, I emailed Pastor Robin to ask him about the dress code for a Sunday service. And he replied and he assured me, it's business casual. You don't need a tie, just a jacket. Um, and I will have to admit, uh, there was a little moment of panic there. You know, I, di I didn't go out and buy this suit just for this Sunday, but I did have to go look for it. Uh, I was sure I brought it from Taiwan, but it wasn't hanging in my closet. And so, you know, how we dress is just one small example of the cultural differences and the cultural boundaries that are all around us, especially living today in the 21st century. You know, whether we're moving from country to country, continent to continent, or even just state to state, maybe even neighborhood to neighborhood within the same city, we are confronted by cultural difference. And even if you're not going anywhere, even if you stay in the same place, your context is changing. It's probably changing very rapidly. Uh, that's been my experience as I left Southern California three years ago and came back to find that so many things had changed. 
You know, at my church in California, 15 years ago, all of the pastors wore suits and ties every single Sunday. Uh, just last month, though, I had come back from missions, and so I was asked to preach. And I went up to preach wearing a short-sleeved polo shirt. Uh, let me assure you, it was horrifying, right? Uh, it's, it's not comfortable. But this is a glimpse of what being a missionary actually is. You are a cross-cultural gospel worker. And what that means you're called to do is you are called to leave what is comfortable and familiar, maybe wearing a jacket and tie, and you accept things that are uncomfortable and, and unfamiliar for the sake of sharing the gospel and advancing God's kingdom. And in today's world, it's not just missionaries that need to deal with cultural change or cultural differences. We all deal with it, no matter where we are. The only way we can successfully adapt to ever-changing cultural environments is by being firmly centered on the gospel that is unchanging. When we are rooted and fixed on this gospel, then we can freely and, and confidently adapt to things around us. We can accept, accommodate, maybe even compromise with the cultural context that we find ourselves in. This is, I think, the big insight that we can draw uh, when we look at our text today uh, from 1 Thessalonians. I call this passage Paul's missions update. This is his missions update to the Thessalonian church. Um, and as we look at it, we'll draw two points. First, we'll look at Paul's assessment of his ministry. Second, we will look at Paul's approach to ministry. And from these two points together, we want to get a sense of what gospel-centered ministry and missions actually looks like. What advantage it gives us as we are dealing with the world around us. So Paul gives his assessment of his ministry in Thessalonica in verse 1. He says, For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. Uh, not in vain. In other words, Paul is saying, our visit was not a failure. Uh, this is a paraphrase that I borrow from the New Living Translation of the Bible. Uh, you see, in Taiwan, I teach in the English major of Christ College Taipei. It's a Christian liberal arts college. So I'm teaching Bible classes in English for students who are mainly English language learners. English is not their first language. So one of the cultural adaptations I made becoming a missionary is I ditched the ESV and I started using the New Living Translation as my primary English translation of the Bible. And now I know for many Presbyterians, uh, this is an unthinkable sacrilege, right? Abandoning the God-given ESV. But, uh, you know, the NLT, so my wife has been a long champion of the NLT in our family, and it does trade, it does make this trade-off of precision for clarity. And now this clarity is very useful. And even reading verse one, you know, 
it's kind of clunky. Our, our coming to you was not in vain, whereas the NLT says it very simply, our visit was not a failure. It wasn't a failure. This is not really a very high bar that Paul is setting for himself here, but we need to think a little bit about the situation that he was actually involved in. <clears throat> he writes in verse two, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness to, uh, in our God to, to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. So in this letter, Paul just briefly mentions suffering and conflict. But if we turn to the book of Acts, uh, which we're not going to, uh, we do see in greater detail the situation in Philippi and Thessalonica. Um, in Philippi, according to Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul was beaten and then thrown into prison. Then he comes to Thessalonica, and just as his ministry is starting, um, he's gaining converts among the Jewish people and the Gentile people there. This mob forms against Paul. They go attack this new Christian community, and they try to throw everyone into jail. Paul looks back on this experience, and he says, my visit was not a failure. Right? Imagine if your family social coming up ends with everyone in the church being thrown into jail for disorderly, disorderly conduct, or whatever it might be. Right? Uh, you're not going to look back on it as a very successful event. But Paul has been beaten thrown in prison, then run out of town. And still he says, my ministry there was not a failure. Why does he say this? How can he say this? It's because regardless of whatever else was going on, the gospel was proclaimed and the gospel was received and believed. As far as Paul is concerned, this makes it a success. Defining success in life or in ministry is no easy thing. And even well-intentioned Christians can have serious disagreements about it. My family and I spent a little bit over two and a half years in Taiwan, and I can honestly say that it was an amazing and wonderful time for us. Um, to be sure, there were ups and downs, different challenges that we had to face, but overall, we very much enjoyed our life there. <laughs> And the transition that we made as a family from the U.S. to Taiwan uh, went very smoothly. And so even coming back to the U.S. now for what's called a home assignment, we all feel like Taiwan is now our home, and we are uh, very eager to get back there um, this coming June. But I do have to admit that our last two months in Taiwan uh, were extremely stressful. They were challenging times. Uh, there was a lot of instability at Christ College, where I teach. And about a month before we left Taiwan, uh, the Christ College board announced a plan uh, to close the school this summer. They wanted to pay severance to all the faculty and staff. They wanted to help all the students that we had transfer to other schools in Taiwan. And then they wanted to close Christ College and then start over with something new. 
something that they had not yet determined. <clears throat> now, before you get too concerned for Christ College, let me assure you, uh, the school did not shut down this summer. Uh, God answered many prayers, and the leaders who uh, envisioned this plan all voluntarily resigned. And so now we have a new leadership in place, including a school president um, and a new board that has formed with some alumni stepping up to lead the school into its next chapter. But when the board announced uh, this plan to, to close the school, it resulted in months of conflict that were still unresolved when we left Taiwan. So it was very difficult. Uh, the board was on one side with their plan, and the faculty, the Taiwanese faculty, the missionaries, and the students and alumni were united on the other, opposing this idea to close down Christ College. And it's still hard for me to completely understand their thought process, but the board and these Christian leaders did have their reasons for the decision that they made. But one of the root causes of the conflict was a disagreement, a fundamental disagreement about the vision of Christ College and how you define its success as an educational institution. Understanding Christ College is not the easiest thing to do because it is unique in the Taiwanese context. It is the only Christian college in all of Taiwan. It's the only college that requires all of its faculty and staff uh, to be Christian and sign a statement of faith. It requires all students to take a sequence of six Bible classes. There are weekly chapels and night devotions that are a mandatory part of campus life for all of the students. All of this is because the vision and purpose of Christ College is the spiritual formation of students in Christ through academic instruction and shared community life. Now, Christ College has a wide range of students. Uh, some are Taiwanese Christian. Uh, they uh, grew up in Christian families, and they want a school that will nurture them in their Christian faith. Uh, the church in Taiwan, demographically, is older, on the older side. Uh, there aren't many places where young Christians can find community uh, that will nurture their growing faith. So Christ College is an important asset in that. Uh, a large number of our students are from mainland China who grew up in house churches. They face a lot of government pressure, and they've sacrificed a lot for the sake of receiving a Christian education. We also have a growing number of non-Christian students who come to Christ College because, one, it's a bilingual education. It provides a pathway to study in the U.S., but also because Christ College has a reputation for being caring and nurturing with Christian faculty and staff. And all of the faculty, and I think most of the students, including the non-Christians, would agree that as a Christian college, uh, Christ College is succeeding in its vision. It's very easy to get, the, to get to know the students there and see the impact that the gospel has had on their lives that they have experienced the love of Christ as they've lived in community together. <coughs> but 
But the fact is, Christ College has faced many challenges in the last 15 years. And so it was easy for the board to look at Christ College, overlook the work that has been done in these students' lives, and see instead a failing institution. Enrollment has dropped. Every year there are annual budget deficits. Uh, the school is not as academically prestigious as it once was when it was one of a handful of English language college options in Taiwan. The school doesn't boast low acceptance rates, it doesn't have renowned professors, and to be honest, it does not attract the, the best and brightest students from Taiwan. So by worldly metrics, uh, you could make the case that the school is failing, that there are reasons to shut it down, but you would be overlooking the fact that the gospel is faithfully proclaimed, that it is received and believed by the students, and the kingdom of God is advancing there. We are having an impact on the lives of the students God has entrusted to us. And so the question of success depends mostly on how you look at the situation. Are you seeing it from the correct perspective? One of the most interesting things about our text today from 1 Thessalonians is that Paul is writing his missions report to the people who were there with him. They were the ones who lived through it. Paul is not coming from halfway around the world talking about a place that they've never been to. This suffering, this conflict happened right there in Thessalonica. The Thessalonians suffered with Paul. Many of them probably had their lives threatened during that time. So it would be very easy for them to think back and say, wow, that was horrible. That was the worst experience of my life, and I hope Paul never comes back again. But Paul writes to them and he tells them, hey, look, my visit was not a failure. He is challenging the natural way that we interpret our experiences, good and bad. And all of us need a correction of perspective. You know, none of us naturally interpret our experiences properly in light of the gospel. Our instincts are always to interpret life in self-centered and self-serving ways, right? Prosperity is good, suffering is bad. But, you know, we need to learn how to see all of our experiences, like Paul does, in a gospel-centered way. And that starts with thinking very carefully about how we define success in life. What are we aiming for? <coughs> um, Taiwan uh, is a land that is filled with idols, literal, physical idols everywhere. Uh, traditional Asian religions, like Buddhism and Taoism, have a very strong cultural presence. Um, around only around 5% of people in Taiwan are Christian, and over 70% of Taiwanese people worship at these traditional shrines and temple that, temples that you find everywhere. But even as non-Christians 
are going to temples to pray for things like money, houses, family, and health. You know, Christians are going to church to pray for exactly the same things. Right? And of course, these earthly blessings are not bad things. They are things that we all want in our lives. But for Christians, there must be something more to life. And there is. We have the goal of knowing Christ in his death and resurrection. We have the greater blessing of knowing the creator God in a covenant relationship. And so our definition of success is different. It must be different. It must be radically transformed and shaped by the gospel that we believe. But sometimes uh, we just want to have it all. We want the best of both worlds. You know, as I was uh, preparing for this message, I actually thought about Psalm 27 that we read as our call to worship today. You know, one thing I ask, one thing I seek, and that is to see God's face, to be in his presence. And I wonder how much that is true for, for our hearts, because the reality is we often aim for many things all at once. And in the process of doing that, we sometimes end up settling for less than the life Christ has called us to. One of the most famous uh, Taiwanese Americans in the world is a basketball player named Jeremy Lin. Uh, there are documentaries about him. Uh, globally, Jeremy Lin is best known for what's called Lin Sanity. Back in February of 2012, for about two weeks, he was the very best basketball player on planet Earth. Uh, he even took down Kobe Bryant and the Lakers in a very famous game in Madison Square Garden. But I like to joke that in Taiwan, Jeremy, Jeremy Lin is best known for something else, not basketball. In Taiwan, Jeremy Lin is revered because he went to Harvard. And I'm only half joking when I say this, because if you ask most Taiwanese parents, would you rather have your kids grow up and play professional basketball, or would you have them grow up and go to Harvard University? Most Taiwanese parents would choose Harvard uh, without question. But think about the example of Jeremy Lin. He went to Harvard and he plays basketball. On top of all of that, He's Christian. He's a very outspoken Christian. So he went to Harvard. He plays basketball. He's rich and famous. I don't know if Jeremy Lin is considered good-looking, but at least he's very tall. He has that going for him, right? So he is the total package. And he's Christian, did I mention. He is everything that you could want for yourself. He's everything, if you're a parent, that you could want for your children when they grow up. But imagine if, out of all those different things, all those different ways that Jeremy Lin is blessed by God, you could only pick one. Which would it be? Now, we all know the right answer. It's walking with the Lord, right? Walking with the Lord is the most important thing, but in practice, it's much harder as a parent, you know, you 
push your kids to excel academically, maybe go to Harvard one day, right? Uh, my son is in youth group now. Where are the boys on Sundays? They're all playing baseball, basketball, soccer, right? In practice, it's much harder to make decisions about what really matters most. If you're an American, you probably measure success in, in many different ways, right? Your job title, your zip code, the car parked in your driveway, where you went on your last vacation. The world has so many different ways of keeping score, reminding us of who's winning and who's losing. And when we get caught up in all of that, we end up losing sight of what it really means to succeed. Now, how was Paul able to keep his eye on what was most important? He was beaten. He was thrown in prison. His life was endangered so many times. And he looks back and says, that was a great missions trip, right? One reason it's so easy for us to lose sight of what success really is I think it's deep down, it's not really God's approval that we are living for. Paul explains this in verses 3 and 4 from his own experience. He says, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Paul could see his life and ministry with clarity because he knew whose approval he really needed. He wasn't out there to win glory for himself. He wasn't out there to impress other people. His only goal was to please God and to bring glory to Christ. And so he could look at all of his experiences, both good and bad, and see it all in this gospel-centered way. Whose approval do you really crave? In Asian cultures, it's often your parents. Your parents' expectations will dominate the aims and agendas of your life. Uh, it doesn't matter if you're 10 years old, 20 years old, 30, 40, 50, even 60 years old. Throughout your life, uh, you are living for your parents' approval. I see this play out in the lives of our students at Christ College all the time. You know, in American culture, it could also be your parents as well. Or it could be your boss, that promotion you really want. Your spouse and your children having that perfect family. More and more, the approval people live for is from those faceless people out there on social media. You know, you're trying to impress them one selfie at a time. But all of this need for approval is rooted in the bondage of sin. You know, Christ came and he died to set us free from the burden of all of these false expectations that we live with. Christ came to give us life that is truly life. He came to set us free. He came to set us free from the futility of chasing after what the world offers so that we can live a life that is truly worthy of the children of God. To live that life, 
to live a life that is worthy of our callings, we need to first be transformed from the inside. Our relationship with God must be repaired. Our hearts must be turned to him so that it is his approval that we seek first and foremost. His approval that we seek only out of everyone. And this is what I think it means to worship God, to look to him as our God. And when we do that, our motivations will change, and then it will slowly change how we evaluate and assess everything in our lives. So we see in our text Paul's assessment of his ministry, and then we also see our second point today, uh, Paul's approach to ministry, and both are gospel-centered. Uh, let me read again verses 6 through 8. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. In verses 6 and 7, uh, Paul talks about his approach to ministry, and he compares two different models of dealing with the church. And Paul says he did not come like an apostle making demands of the church. Instead, he had the gentleness of a nursing mother uh, taking care of her own children. (coughs) The apostle making demands... Um, the apostle making demands is someone who is looking out for their own interests. In that very worldly mindset, other people exist to serve my needs. But the nursing mother is the exact reverse. The nursing mother lives to serve the needs of her growing child. The image of this nursing mother is in many ways a beautiful one, but it's one that we tend to romanticize. But the, you know, but all of us who have gone through the experience of being children, uh, of being parents, uh, you know, we know that the reality of nursing, taking care of children, is not always a beautiful thing. Uh, sometimes it can be brutal. You know, nursing a baby is demanding. It's draining. Sometimes it's demoralizing and depressing because uh, it's 24-7, it's day after day, night after night, and it goes on for months and months and months and months and months, right? It, It seems like it never ends. And it is sacrificial. You are giving yourself. You know, after pregnancy, delivery, and nursing, there's recovery. But the fact is, it's never a full recovery. Uh, You never recover that full strength and vitality that you once had. You know, my wife will still complain about weakness in her hands, about weakness, feeling weakness in her bones after nursing our children. And nursing mothers permanently sacrifice part of themselves Uh, physically, a large part of their lives in terms of years uh, to ensure the growth of their babies. 
And this image captures Paul's approach to ministry. The call to gospel ministry is a call to lay down our lives for the sake of others. There are many ways that we can help other people, but laying down your life is the only way that you can convincingly tell others about the love of Christ who laid down his life for you. The gospel must be embodied. It must be demonstrated in real living people. Technology is wonderful. Uh, Technology has opened up so many avenues for taking the gospel to the nations. But it cannot replace experiencing the love of Christ embodied in a person, embodied in relationships and in community together. This is the main idea of Paul's approach to ministry. In verse 8, he says, So, being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Paul's ministry involves not just sharing the gospel. It's not just a message. It's not just a sermon. It's not just information being handed from one person to another. Paul is sharing himself, and he does this out of love. In missions today, uh, there are so many different kinds of work that missionaries can do. I'm mainly involved in theological education. I teach the Bible in a college classroom. My wife, Susanna, is involved in special needs and disability ministry. Uh, Many missionaries support church planting work. Uh, Others are engaged in business as missions. Uh, A growing field is using digital media to reach people with the gospel. So there are so many different ways to do missions. Now, if you're sitting here and you can't imagine yourself as a missionary, I would just say you need a better imagination. Uh, Because whatever you are doing here as a Christian... You can do some version of that over there for Christ and his kingdom. And you can do some version over there where people around you have very, very, very limited access to the gospel. But whatever it is that you're doing in your Christian life that is gospel ministry, whether it's here or somewhere else, You really only have two things to offer to this world. You have the gospel and you have yourself. What does it mean to share ourselves, though? You know, a lot of times we think about ministry or we think about missions and we think only about our strengths. We think about our gifts, our resources, our expertise. Now, these things are all useful and they're good, But I don't think that's what it means to share yourself with others. Because if you read the letters of Paul, he is very clear on this point. God does not use us or call us in our strength. God uses us in our weakness. I would go further to say God only uses us in our weakness. So what we have to share with others is our grace-transformed self in all our weakness and brokenness before God. 
We share our grace-transformed self, and we are then the living proof of the power of Jesus' death and resurrection in our own lives as we have experienced God's grace. And the only way that we can truly share ourselves in this way is when we lay down our lives and follow Jesus to the cross, embracing both suffering and humiliation. As Americans, this can be difficult. It is difficult to embrace weakness. It is difficult to put our weakness on display, to display our weakness and our brokenness enough so that the glory of Christ can actually shine through in who we are. We still very much want to impress other people, so it makes it hard to do ministry like Paul did. You know, sometimes as a missionary, there's pressure to pass yourself off as a spiritual expert of some kind. We're over there as the experts, a New Testament scholar or a church planting guru. We have the answers that you need, right? But the reality is, you know, our only credibility as witnesses of Christ comes from the fact that we are broken, flawed, and sinful people who have experienced God's grace and mercy on a personal level. It's when people see that, that they will see Christ and receive the gospel. Uh, but it's very hard in practice to embrace and adopt this approach to ministry as your primary approach. Uh, it's humiliating by definition. But there is a built-in component to the missionary experience that helps you. It forces you to confront your weakness and come to embrace it. And that is the cross-cultural experience, the experience of moving from your home, from what is familiar and comfortable, to a place that is completely foreign and unfamiliar. Having to adapt to a new culture really shows you just how limited you are in your abilities, and how limited you are in your life experience, in this wisdom and this understanding of the world that you thought you had. On top of that, language learning is a humbling process, and there are no shortcuts to that work. So just being in a foreign context quickly reduces you to the competence level of a four-year-old in most of your social interactions. Uh, you have no choice but to admit your weakness there. And even in this, uh, we are following in the example of Jesus. He crossed the greatest barrier, coming from his place in heaven down to earth, where we are. In entering our context in the incarnation, he had to humble himself. He stripped away all of his status, his privilege, his glory. And we must do the same kind of thing to connect with people who are different from us. And it's not just missionaries who have to do this. We all have opportunities to humble ourselves, to leave our place, and engage with people in their context and on their terms. And they might live just down the street from you. We live in what are challenging times. We are living in a rapidly changing world. So as we engage with the world around us, we need to be even more firmly rooted 
and centered on the gospel. We need the gospel to give us clarity about what we are aiming for, what we hope to achieve as Christian people, as a church, as missionaries. The world gives us so many different ways of keeping score, but the success of our mission centers on just two questions. Was the gospel proclaimed and was it believed? Now, if this is our goal, the only way they will ever believe our message if we, is if we share with them ourselves, our grace-transformed selves in weakness, brokenness, and humility. Uh, let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, we thank you that you have called us into your service, into a life that is worthy of your children to join with you in your great work of advancing your kingdom in this world that you've made in bringing the gospel of Jesus, the gospel that brings hope and life to all the nations. So I pray that you would engage each one of us in that work and that you would bring us to that place where we can humble ourselves and freely share ourselves with others to show them not how great we are, but how great Christ our Savior is. And so we ask that you would mobilize and empower this church for your kingdom's sake. In Christ's name, amen.